My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some content from the January edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to gastrointestinal symptoms and nutritional issues in patients with hypermobility disorders, assessment, diagnosis and management. This is a review by Lam and colleagues. It's a complex topic. Presentation to secondary and tertiary care centres is increasing. There is a lack of specific guidance and management can be challenging, including the potential for iatrogenic harm. Key points in this article include the true prevalence of hypermobility disorders is unknown, gut symptomatology is often due to disorders of the gut-brain interaction and in the absence of objective evidence of dysmotility or other dysfunction, a biopsychosocial model of treating symptoms can be the most effective. Postural tachycardia syndrome has been demonstrated in around 30%. Over 70% of patients have psychological symptoms, either primary or secondary. Patients often have a high medication burden. Eating-related symptoms are common, leading to reduced oral intake and or food avoidance. Oral diet and oral nutritional supplements should be optimised first. The evidence for clinically assisted nutrition and hydration is for objectively demonstrated malnutrition or electrolyte disturbance only. The authors describe evidence-based strategies for management with an emphasis on reducing the risk of iatrogenic harm and improving multidisciplinary team care. The article is helpful, practical and pragmatic. It's editor's choice this month. The second article relates to understanding and managing psychological disorders in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. It's really a practical guide. Although it's well known to clinicians that anxiety and depression are common in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, it's less clear how best to impact. Clinical teams should include a psychologist, although this isn't always the case. In this issue, Belcock and colleagues discuss the evidence base and practical management and provide a stepwise approach to psychological care in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which all members of the MDT can use. This includes an overview of the management options for optimising mental well-being, ranging from lifestyle measures to a combination of psychological therapy and antidepressants. There's an excellent accompanying figure, summary of mental health support available in the UK, and guide to the prescribing of antidepressants. Essential reading, listen to the accompanying podcast. The next paper relates to positioning intestinal ultrasound in a UK tertiary centre, looking at the significant estimated clinical role and potential cost saving. It's an important article. There is increasing interest in the use of intestinal ultrasound in the diagnosis and monitoring of inflammatory bowel disease, including detection of complications. Luber and colleagues report from their centre on the proportion of colonoscopies and small bowel MRI examinations that could have been saved if intestinal ultrasound was performed as an alternative. This is a retrospective case notes review. 
In summary, the authors concluded 73 of 260 colonoscopies and 58 of 105 small bowel MRIs could potentially have been avoided. No significant pathology would have been missed. These findings, which do need prospective evaluation, suggest a significant potential cost saving. There are clearly issues regarding case selection, equipment, training, skills of the operator and such like to address if intestinal ultrasound is going to become a widely available point of care test. The next article relates to a survey of UK clinician approaches to decision-making in neonatal intensive care, particularly relating to the decision-making in neonatal intestinal failure. This is a complex and emotive topic. The outcome for neonatal intestinal failure has improved considerably over the past two decades, with patients surviving long-term on parental nutrition. In this issue, Cairns and colleagues explore clinician approaches to decision-making in neonatal intestinal failure, particularly when the outcome is likely to be long-term dependence on parental nutrition or gut transplantation. The participants were neonatologists, paediatric surgeons and paediatric gastroenterologists, all surveyed electronically. They were asked if they would recommend active or palliative care or allow the parents to decide in several specific scenarios. Of 147 respondents, 81% of gastroenterologists would recommend active care for a term infant with total gut Hirschsprungs, compared with 46% and 33% of surgeons and neonatologists respectively. No gastroenterologist recommended palliation, while 23% of both neonatologists and surgeons would. There were further scenarios presented, including that of a 28-week gestation infant with bilateral parenchymal hemorrhages and short bowel syndrome with equally variant recommendations. There was similarly variance in prognostic estimates with better survival prediction for neonatal intestinal failure at five years by gastroenterologists than surgeons or neonatologists. This significant variance in knowledge base and advice given emphasizes the importance of multidisciplinary assessment and discussion in this difficult setting, including, the authors suggest, a national framework to help guide early decision-making. There's an excellent accompanying commentary, neonatal intestinal failure, improved outcomes. The final article I'd like to highlight in this edition is lessons from an audit of exclusive enteral nutrition in adult inpatients and outpatients with active Crohn's disease, a single centre experience. Exclusive enteral nutrition is well recognised as a highly effective first-line treatment for paediatric Crohn's disease. It's less well used in adult practice. In this issue, Melton and colleagues review their experience. In summary, exclusive enteral nutrition was initiated in 60 patients over a two-and-a-half-year period. Of the 49 in whom the goal was induction of remission, 28 completed the course and 24 achieved a reasonable response if not clinical remission. 21 withdrew either for intolerance or disease-related factors. Completion of the course was associated with effective disease 
control and high self-reported adherence with improvements in nutritional status and weight gain. The key issue for patients who were not able to tolerate exclusive enteral nutrition was the inability to accept the total avoidance of non-formula food. This study is important. It provides further evidence for the use of exclusive enteral nutrition, but also highlights the research priority, which is to try and help develop effective strategies to support patients' compliance and enable them to complete the full course. There is an excellent accompanying commentary, Let Food Be Thy Medicine. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to enjoy, read and feedback on the journal. Please follow us on Twitter and listen to our regular podcasts and Twitter debates accessed via the journal website. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening.